righty. Well, good morning, beloved. Good morning. Great to see all of you today. Nice, nice turnout. I want to invite you to uh, open your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. I feel like I say this every week, but we have just another wonderful section of verses to cover this morning. And um, I want to begin today by reading verses 16 to 21. So 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Here now is the word of the living and true God. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The title of today's sermon is The Infallibility of Scripture. And when we talk about Scripture being infallible, what we mean is, is that Scripture is incapable of error. If uh, something is infallible, it is never wrong, and thus it is incredibly trustworthy. Uh, similarly, the inerrancy means the absence of error, the inerrancy of Scripture. So, if God is infallible, which He is, then so will be His Word. The doctrine of Scripture's infallibility is based on an understanding of God's perfect character. Psalm chapter 19, verse 7 says that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, and this testimony is sure, making wise the simple. And so, Scripture is divinely inspired. There are two authors to every book of the Bible. The primary author is God, the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And as we just read there in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God, how you ask, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, saying, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of who? God. Not man, God. And so, because God is holy, everything written then in his book is holy, and it is without error. There are no contradictions at all in the Bible. So God the Holy Spirit is the primary author, and yet incredibly, incredibly, God worked through human authors to write these scriptures down. Um, now, that doesn't mean that he just, you know, zapped a bunch of godly men, and he said, now write this down, and they went, okay, now I'll write this down, and it wasn't like a, a mechanical um, dictation. It's really a mystery of divine inspiration of Scripture. That miraculously, just as the Holy Spirit came upon imperfect Mary, Mary the mother of our Lord, and she became pregnant as the Holy Spirit came upon her with Jesus Christ, who was perfect and without sin, even so, that same Holy Spirit worked through human authors, though they were sinful themselves. And yet, they were able to produce that which is perfect 
and without error, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. And what's really incredible when we refer to Scripture as being infallible, it's not only true and without error, but just consider all 66 of its books written by more than 40 different authors over a span of more than 1,500 years. And yet, not even once does it contradict itself. Which, if you know anything about fallen man, you understand just how impossible that would be. You can lock two of us into a room and have us agree on probably the way we should write two paragraphs. No, Nick, it should be written this way. No, I think it would be better this way. Now, this is what this means. Now, this is what it means. But if you think about it, this book, if it was written by man, it would be filled with contradictions then. Never mind that there are over 31,000 Bible verses that seamlessly tell one cohesive story of God and his people. The Bible then is the infallible word of God. I love what it says in Psalm 119, verse 160, as the psalmist declares, the sum of your word is truth. The sum of your word is truth. It says in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, that every word of God proves true. The testimony of Scripture is that we have the true word, a reliable word, a word that we can trust. And despite the endless attacks that have come against the Scriptures through all the years, those who wish to debunk the Bible, God's word always proves to be true. In this letter, Peter is writing to Christians, Christians who are being tested not only by persecution from outside the church, but by an onslaught of false teachers within the church as well. What are these false teachers trying to do? They are trying to undermine our trust in Scripture and thus destroy the Christian faith. The same thing that people are trying to do today and have always tried to do. This is nothing new. They're trying to discredit Scripture. These are satanic liars whose false religion denies the only true God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in chapter 2, Peter describes these false teachers, we'll see in a few weeks, in very vivid details. In fact, his language is absolutely unforgettable. He calls them what they really are. Because he wants all of his readers to know false teachers when they see them. And so chapter 2 is devoted to that description. But it's not enough to merely know who they are. You have to defend yourself against what they say. And so Peter is building in this epistle three lines of defense. And they're all built around the Greek word epigenosis, which speaks to um, a right knowledge a true, full, deep, personal knowledge of what we believe. Protection number one, we covered that, and it says that you must know that you're saved. Protection number two, you must know your scripture. And then protection number three, you must know your sanctification. In the first, uh, in chapter 1, in the first uh, 11 verses that we already studied, Peter dealt with knowing your salvation. Because if you do not have a true saving knowledge of the gospel, and you are not assured of your salvation, you are easy prey for the false teachers. And then in chapter 3, he will deal with the matter of knowing your sanctification as false teachers will suggest you can live however you want to live. They'll tell you if God was really unpleased with how you were living, wouldn't he have done something now about it to you? And 
once again, not having a right knowledge of sanctification will lead you to be a prey for false teacher deceptions. Romans 12.9 tells us we must use our discernment to detest what is evil and to cling to what is good. Detest to what is evil, cling to what is good. And so Peter's point is this, is this. If you know your scriptures, and if you know you have been set apart and being sanctified by the spirit of the living God, and if you know that you are truly saved by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, then you have set your defenses against the deceptions of the false teachers. Now today, we're looking at the element of Scripture. Peter says you must know your Scripture. And the reason why this is so important is because if a false teacher is up here passionately preaching God's Word to you and shouting and, and, and all sorts of stuff, he really seems like he, he's passionate and, and knows exactly what it is that he's preaching about. But he doesn't rightly the, divide the Scriptures as the Bible tells us to, meaning that he's twisting every scripture around to say something that is not meant to say something that is not true in other words he's taking scriptures out of context we call it but if you don't know the scriptures how are you going to recognize his error on the other hand if i know the scriptures and if i believe this is the true word of god that whatever comes my way i can rightly measure it against the truth of god's word and rightly divide it. You must know your scriptures. Peter, you'll recall, has already indicated his concern for truth back in the verses we covered last week, verses 12 to 15. He discussed through those verses, um, he wants you to um, remember, and he's going to keep bringing to your remembrance the truth so that be able to recall these things, verse 15 at any time and he was talking about his plans for writing this in the scriptures peter's passion here is that his people would know the truth that's what he's worried about the truth of the gospel the truth of scripture the truth of your sanctification and he says as long as i'm in this body verse 13 i'm going to continue to remind you of the truth i'm just going to keep bringing this to reminder for you and he talked about how he make every effort in verse 15. And there he's talking about to write these things down so that after his departure, after he has died, you will always have it. And we recognized last week that's true. Anytime we can open up the scriptures of 2 Peter and read the words he was so passionate about wanting to bring to our remembrance about. And so you're fulfilling Peter's passion. Now the question that some might have would be, well, you know, that's fine, Peter. I'm glad you're real zealous for the truth and everything. But how are we to know that what you write is true? Right? How are we to know that what other people write isn't true? I mean, Peter, there's a lot of voices. There are a lot of teachers coming into our churches. The guy who came last week after you left said he had the truth. And he had it written down. And he said these were the scriptures from God. How are we to know what the prophets have said in the Old Testament? What they wrote is true. There are a lot of voices out there. There are a lot of opinions. A lot of different people. Who do we believe and why? To that Peter replies in verses 16 to 21. Very important topic. He says, I'm no false teacher because number one, I'm an eyewitness. I'm an eyewitness. What's he saying? He's saying the word you have is the word of an eyewitness. This isn't from some secondhand material that's out there. I was there. It is Peter's eyewitness experience. And we're going to cover that this week in verses 16 through 18. And then you'll see on the back of your notes, secondly, what he'll say in verses 19 to 20 is the scripture I write doesn't come from human wisdom it comes from divinely inspired truth as the spirit of god has moved men to write it so this isn't just human wisdom this is godly wisdom this is divine wisdom and truth and that will be point number two in verses 19 to 21 god's supernatural revelation 
And so you have a true word on, tr on two accounts here. You have the eyewitnesses who wrote it, and you have the Spirit of God who inspired it. These two lines of verification um, come together, and they tie two strands of an unbreakable knot around the true word of God. Now, for today, let's jump into point number one, and Peter's eyewitness experience. Peter's eyewitness experience. In verses 16 and 18, Peter accredits himself by virtue of his personal experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, Peter was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He announced that in verse 1. And he's going to say, look, th this, this that I've written to you isn't something that came down the philosophical um, pipeline. It isn't something I picked up in some mythology. This is my personal eyewitness account. And what I say to you and what I teach to you is firsthand experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's begin this in verse 16 and see how he lays out his argument. And I want you to first notice how he begins his testimony. It starts with the word for in verse 16, for. And of course, that word uh, for links this thought back to the previous passage in verses 12 to 15 as Peter is explaining why. Why he's going to continually to remind you of the truth. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Now the we here speaks of the other apostles. He's speaking um, in a collective sense of himself and the other writers of the New Testament. Collectively, he says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But rather, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We have all had personal verification from God himself of the truth that we teach. See that verb there in verse 16, did not follow? It can mean to uh, rest upon for either a confidence or a doctrine. Uh, we do not rest upon these cleverly devised myths, these tales, these, these stories, Peter is saying, for what we believe, for what we teach, for what we write, do not rest upon these myths. It is the truth. Now this opening assertion very likely reflects the accusations that are coming from Peter that we don't see. Sounds like Peter was facing something that he's addressing. This is the accusation. So it's likely Peter was being falsely accused of teaching cleverly devised myths to get people to follow him. And he's saying, no, we didn't do that. And why would people um, try to get you to believe cleverly devised myths? Oh, I don't know, control, money, power, so you could fleece the flocks. In this time uh, period, sexual flavor, uh, favors from the women. So power, prestige, popularity, prominence, all that stuff, this is all still going on. That's all what goes with being a false teacher. Now what does that little phrase there, cleverly devised myths, mean? Well, cleverly devised simply means teaching um, through deception, using deception in your teaching. And it is a teaching that intends to deceive somebody. They would cleverly devise someone in order to fleece you out of money or cleverly devise to gain from you whatever it is they want from you. And beloved, that was the ploy, that is the ploy, that will be the ploy of false teachers. Same record. Same thing. They are after you. They would dress up as if they were prophets for the purpose of devouring the sheep. The word myths here, uh, muthos in the Greek, is where we get the word obviously myth, myth from. And it refers to um, mystical stories, tales of the gods and goddesses, Zeus and the rest. So Peter says, look, we don't rest upon these cleverly devised stories for our teaching and doctrine in order to deceive you. And the implication is, like the false teachers who accuse us of that, these false teachers, in order to have what they 
taught to the church, believed, have to destroy first what the apostles teach. You have to lose your confidence in the scripture. And so you can just listen to me. And now we don't teach you out of the Bible anymore. And now all you do is hear me talk and all the wisdom and ideas that I have. And you don't need your Bibles anymore. I've got something really great to tell you. Turn on the TV. That's all preachers do today. It's all gimmicks and these ridiculous stories. Nothing to do with the Bible unless maybe they take one verse out of context and say, oh, I need this verse here to make the point or of my joke or something. They don't teach the Bible. It is absolute deception. And this is what false teachers did back then. This is what they still do today. But first, they needed to destroy what the apostles taught so then they could come into the church to deceive them. And it's an attempt to destroy people's trust in the Christian faith. They labeled the scriptures nothing but fanciful stories and cleverly devised myths. Next thing you know, yeah, I didn't really believe these stories anyways. They sounded kind of ridiculous. In fact, even today you have so-called progressive theologians who write and teach that scripture shouldn't be taken literally, but rather the Bible is nothing more than a bunch of old mythological fanciful stories anyways. So Peter's saying, when I speak to you about the assurance of salvation, uh, when I speak to you about the hope of eternal glory and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, these are not embellished tales without reality. They are true. And the first evidence he gives is because we were eyewitnesses. We saw it. We were there. Now before we move on, I want you to notice that little phrase in verse 16, when we made known to you. See that there? Known, that phrase, we made known, actually is one Greek word. It's a word, norizo, and it's a technical term. And when used in the New Testament, it speaks of um, imparting of new revelation, new scripture. And it's important to note that here, because that's how Peter intends to use it here, and we need to know that. This is new revelation, made known to you. What do you mean made known? I wrote down the scripture, God breathed scripture but just to give you another sort of example of this in a very um, practical way the same thing is used and known in luke chapter 2 verse 15 you all know the story right after jesus has been born it says um, the shepherds said to one another let us go to bethlehem and see this thing what thing that jesus was born see this thing that happened which the lord has made known to us that was revelation that came out. And how do we know? Well, we just read it, read it in Scripture. So it's new revelation that ends up in Scripture. And what was the new revelation there? That the Messiah was born in Bethlehem. So back to our text in, in 2 Peter. What's Peter saying then? It's when we gave you God's word, we didn't give you some cleverly devised myths, we made known to you new revelation from God. Now, you might be wondering, but what's he specifically talking about? Well, notice what he says next. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this gets us into the real deception of what these false teachers are trying to do. Because not only are they attempting to destroy Peter and the rest of the apostles and the prophets as nothing but storytellers, but particularly they're coming after the issue of the Lord's second coming, his return. I believe that is the major concern of these false teachers was to deny the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which if you think about it, is really the culmination of everything. If Jesus isn't coming back, then, well, all the rest kind of just becomes meaningless, doesn't it? It all becomes meaningless. It's similar in that sense to the resurrection. Jesus hasn't rise to the dead. We don't have a living hope. If Jesus ain't returning, if Jesus isn't the end of all history and the beginning of eternity, then the rest all becomes kind of pointless. And this is what all false teachers do. I've said it a thousand times. They want to change either the person of the Christ or the work of Christ or both. They're not picky. They want to change either who Jesus is or the work that he accomplished. The work or the person. That's what they're going after. 
Now, this becomes clear a little further in our passage, but to just affirm it in your na- uh, mind for now that I'm on a right track of why I think it's the return of Christ, turn to chapter 3 for a moment. Just turn a page or two, 2 Peter chapter 3. Um, and here Peter indicates that he's not really surprised by this whole thing. Remember, chapter 2 is all about the false teachers. We're going to see what it is specifically that Peter addresses about them. But right here, before we get into the next topic in chapter 3, in verse 3, he says, know this. First of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. Okay, so we're talking about the last days here. Following after their own loss and saying, where is the promise of his what? His coming. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Where is he? I thought he was coming back. Mockers will deny the promise of his coming. It all continues on just as it's been from the beginning of creation. They were saying things like, Peter keeps telling you these ridiculous stories about how Jesus is coming back at any minute and to always be ready. But all continues on just as it always has. Nothing's changed. And essentially their logic is since Jesus hasn't come back yet, he never will. This is like saying, well, I haven't died yet, so I guess I never will. Right? Ridiculous. But here we see the sort of deceptive teaching these worldviews. And the denial of the second coming seems to have been one of the major doctrines they attacked to discredit Peter as an eyewitness. So back to our verse, verse 16. Peter says, hey, when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not giving you a cleverly devised story, we're giving you the truth. Notice also that phrase, the power and coming. There's only one article there in the Greek, which means that both power and coming are embraced by that single article. So the idea is this, the coming power, or coming in power. That's the idea here. Now, there's something else I want to point out also. If you're just, you know, sitting at home on a Sunday afternoon, um, reading 2 Peter, you're going through this text, and you come upon this section, you might have thought, oh, he's talking about his first coming. Well, the problem is, in his first coming, Jesus didn't come in power, did he? Pastor Rick just read Philippians chapter 2. He came in humiliation. He humbled himself, come obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He came as a baby. He came as a bond slave, a servant. He came as a lamb slain for the sins of his people. He came despised and rejected. In his first coming, he didn't come with that sort of power. He came lowly in that sense, in humility, and then they executed him. But the day is coming, beloved, when he will come in great power. (laughs) That word power there is dunamis, is where we get the word dynamite from. All right? Great, great power. Listen to Matthew 24, verse 30, when uh, we start talking about second coming power. The Lord describes his second coming in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30. And by the way, we know this is, is second coming here because in verse 29, he tells us, this is immediately after the tribulation, when the moon will not give its light. Then he says in verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with what? Power and great glory. Okay? Mark, just to give you another quick example, Mark chapter 14, verse 61 through 62, it says the high priest, you know, kept asking the Lord, asking the Lord, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And so Matthew tells us about his return, chapters 24 and 25. Mark tells us about his 
great coming in power and glory. Acts chapter 1 tells us about this great return. Titus 2.13 says, We are waiting for our blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we saw the same thing then here in 1 Peter, or we, we saw the same thing in 1 Peter when we went through it as well. Now there's one more word there in, in verse 16 that I want us to consider. See how it says, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this word coming here is uh, uh, parousia or parousia in the Greek. Um, and what's interesting about this word is whenever, whenever it's used in the New Testament of Jesus Christ, it always refers to his second coming. Every time. Every time it's used. Now, it's interesting because quite a few commentators miss all of this that I just told you about. So they just think Peter is coming. This is, he, Peter's just talking about the Lord's first coming here. But in light of what we just saw in chapter 3, where the major issue seems to be a denial of his second coming, that's pretty clear, and the fact that Jesus came the first time not in power but in humility, I think once we continue on a little further, we're going to put this whole thing together and see Peter is refuting the false teacher's deception of his second coming glory and power. And so what Peter is saying then is, look, when we told you about the second coming, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we may know to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What we told you was true. And the people might have said, but how do we know that, Peter? Notice the end of verse 16. Because we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. <laughs> oh, snap. <laughs> now, wait a minute here. Some of you thinkers might be going, wait a minute. If Nick is right, and Peter is talking about the Lord's second coming, how could this be then? How could these apostles 2,000 years ago witness the Lord's second coming majesty if the Lord hasn't returned yet still with me you guys following this peter just said we were eyewitnesses of it we saw it his majesty and i'm telling you it's the second coming not the first so if i'm correct how could peter give a first-hand report of the second coming it hasn't happened yet fair question right since it hasn't happened yet how could he do that? How could he witness it? What does he mean we were eyewitnesses of his majesty? Um, now, let me say this right away. There's a sense in which all the apostles have been eyewitnesses of his majesty to some degree in his first coming, of course. They had all seen the majesty of his life through the incredible miracles he performed. They had seen the majesty of his resurrection, for he met them in glorified resurrection uh, body post the tomb. And of course, in Acts chapter 1, they had all been there on the mount and seen the majesty as he ascended up into heaven, right? He's caught up in the clouds into glory in heaven. So in that sense, they were all witnesses of his majesty. But is that what Peter means when he says we were eyewitnesses of his majesty here? That's the question. What does he mean his majesty? Well, We'll do another quick word study. That word majesty is almost an untranslatable word. It's the word megaleatos, I think. We all understand when something says mega, right? Mega, big, massive. Mega, large, massive is the first part of this word. That's the idea of magnificence. That's all in this word. But when we translate it, it's the idea of splendor, grandeur. Uh, glory, majesty, big. So let me ask you this. In his first coming, did Jesus walk around in glory and splendor and majesty? In this context, I will say no. I told you how in a sense he did. But in this sense, no. He came in his humiliation. He was the God-man. But wait a minute. Peter said they were eyewitnesses of his majesty, his second coming glory. That's what he's talking about there so how can this be turn for just a moment keep yourself marked in, in second peter to the gospel of matthew chapter 16 
And when you get to the last verse in Matthew chapter 16, mark that because we're going to jump back and forth a, a few times. So either a finger in one or, or two in the other, or just look up on, there, on the screen or write it in your notes. Because in Matthew chapter 16, verse 28, Jesus predicted that this would happen. Okay? And you need to listen to what Jesus actually said. Matthew chapter 16, verse 28. He said, truly I say to you, there are some of you standing here. He's speaking to the disciples. The apostles, let me be clear, to, to the twelve. There are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Wow. What a statement. There are some of the, the 12 standing there who won't die until they see the Son of Man coming in, in kingdom glory. Astounding. Amazing. But what's he talking about? Is he talking about post-resurrection when he appeared to them? Is he talking about the day of Pentecost when, when the Holy Spirit came in power? What's he talking about? When were they going to see the Son of Man coming in kingdom glory before some of them even died? All right, let's go back to 2 Peter and listen as Peter further describes this amazing event. He's going to tell us. He's going to tell us. But this is what's great by verse by verse. I could just give the answer away, but we're working through the text. We're working through the text, so you're going to know this inside and out. He further describes it in verse 17. Notice what he says. For when he, speaking of Jesus here, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. All right, let's just stop it right there for a second. In verse 16, Peter said, We do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And it was at a time, he says in verse 17, when he received honor and glory from God the Father. So whatever event that Peter's talking about, number one, God was there. God the Father was there he received honor and glory from god the father and this word honor speaks to the exalted value or status of something or someone it's the greek word uh, time and then glory is the word uh doxa and it means uh splendor radiant splendor but when was this? When did Christ receive glory and honor from God the Father and this voice from majestic glory that said, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased? Ah, that helps us now, doesn't it? That helps us narrow it down what God said, doesn't it? God only said, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Do you remember how many times? Twice. First time, the Father said it of Jesus at his baptism. Matthew chapter 3, 17. Remember the dove came down and the audible voice came out. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And then the second time, Peter tells us about it in verse 18. See if you recall it now. He said back in 17, God the Father spoke for majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And Peter says in verse 18, and we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. There it is. Peter's saying, I'm not talking about the time it happened on the Jordan, but on what? On the holy mountain. The transfiguration. The transfiguration. It's the only other time that God said those words. And Peter says, we ourselves heard this very voice. We were with him on the holy mountain. And I'll tell you something. That mountain wasn't holy before this event, but it sure was afterwards. <laughs> Turn to Matthew 17 again, and we'll close it out with some closing thoughts here. Matthew chapter 17 is the transfiguration event. And you'll recall just a few minutes ago, we looked at Matthew 16, 28, which is the last verse 
before you start Matthew chapter 17. And then remember what Jesus said right at that. He said, some of you standing here will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in kingdom glory. Remember that? And boy, he wasn't kidding. Notice chapter 17, verse one, six days later. Whoa, <laughs> that was quick. Six days later. And, and by the way, just to point this out for some of you that might read this later or, or something in Luke's version, Luke 9, 28, he says eight days later. Matthew says six days later. Uh, Luke says eight days later. And since we're talking about the inerrancy and infallibility of scripture, you might say, hey, wait a minute, is that a contradiction? Kind of sounds like a contradiction to me. Six and eight days, that someone's wrong. Should have sat in the middle at seven. No, Luke just included the day he said it and the day that it happened for a total eight. That's a lot of Jewish time and the things that would happen. You had these 12-hour time blocks. It's the same thing with the three days and Jesus being in the tomb. He said three days. And you're like, wait a minute, Friday, Saturday, so he was only there like two and a half days. It wasn't three days. But with Jewish time, that's how they kept track of time. So Matthew counted just the intervening days, and um, Luke counted the, the, the other two days, the day, the day it was announced and the day at the end. So just two different ways of looking at it. Verse 1, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, you might ask, why did he take those three? Well, Peter, James, and John appear to have been the, the inner circle of the 12, right? There was the 12, and then there was the inner three, Peter, James, and John. There were lots of disciples, 12 apostles. One of them, though, was a devil of the 12. And so we see these three men um, who were well-known amongst each other, and Jesus seemingly had this uh, relationship and trust with them as reliable witnesses. And how many witnesses do you need to confirm something? What's the Bible say? Two to three. Two to three witnesses. Right? That whole thing with the two or three and God will show up. Read a little bit before that. that you're taking the verse out of context. The whole thing is about having witnesses. Two to three witnesses. All right? And so God has, the Lord Jesus Christ has two to three witnesses. Peter, James, and John, and, and really these guys were the most, probably some of the most intimate times with the Lord Jesus. Of course, they were with him when Jesus went and prayed in Gethsemane before his crucifixion. And what did they do? They, they fell asleep. Actually, in Luke's version, they fell asleep on top of the mountain too. <laughs> but they wake up. Notice what verse 2 says. And he was transfigured before them. Wow, what does that mean? It's the word metamorpho, metamorphosis, it essentially is. It means to transform. But what did he transform into? Well, verse 2 gives us the description. His face shone like the sun. Wow. The face of the Lord Jesus Christ, like the sun. It'd be one thing to say, wow, his, his face kind of glowed, you know. We would maybe kind of identify with that, but to say his face shone like the sun, this is incredible. If you ever tried looking up at the sun, you know you can't do that without some eye protection. And even then, it's incredibly bright. His face transformed into this blazing brilliance. The apostle John would write in his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He says, we beheld his glory. His glory. John's testimony was the same as Peter's. We were eyewitnesses. We were with them on the holy mountain. We saw the glory of Jesus Christ. Somehow it transferred into this radiant light as his face shone like the sun. Hebrews 1 3, one of my favorite verses, says of Christ, He is the radiance of the glory of God the Father and the exact imprint of His nature. This is the, the transcendent glory, the Shekinah glory of God as it blazed out of His face. It really defies our understanding, it defies man's description. Matthew, the inspired writer, could only say, His face shone like the sun. I don't know what else to tell you. And his clothes became white as light. 
wow. And I'll tell you something. They knew that this was no ordinary what? Man. This was no ordinary man. Transforming into this? They knew they were seeing something that was true. Something supernatural was being revealed to them. They were just getting a glimpse into the majesty of God's glory. But that wasn't it. <laughs> there is even more. Look at verse 3. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. Moses and Elijah showed up and started talking with the Lord. Are you kidding me? What are they talking about? Well, they're talking about his death. They're talking about his death. Luke, if you read the version again, Luke 9.31 tells us, Moses and Elijah appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. But why those two? Why Moses and Elijah? Why did Moses and Elijah show up? Because they represent the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. So here's some more witnesses. Here's some confirming testimony. So the whole Old Testament is tied into this thing and they begin to radiate the very glory of the divine, Luke tells us, just by being next to the Lord. <laughs> they start glowing in Luke's gospel. Now Peter's thinking to himself, this is incredible, man. I can't believe I'm seeing this. And so, not one to hold his thoughts in. <laughs> he says in verse 4, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. See, Peter was a doer. He was a doer. He wants to make this whole fellowship thing permanent. He's thinking, this is it. This has got to be the kingdom glory. Let me just sort of build you all a couple tents. We'll all move in and live here. <laughs> but that wasn't the plan. That wasn't the plan. Jesus has come to be the perfect, blameless sacrifice for the sins of his people. And he must finish his mission. So verse 5 says to us, Peter was still speaking. <laughs> Peter's just running his mouth. Oh, we can do this and that. And, you know, you can imagine Peter. And behold, <laughs> a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then God the Father said something Peter didn't record in his text. He said, and listen to him. And I think what's wrapped up in that is Peter, James, and John. When my son tells you he must suffer and die, believe him. And when he tells you he will rise again, believe him. And when he tells you he will come again in glory, believe him. I think that's all implied in this statement. Listen to him. Listen. Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their face and were terrified. You bet. Freaked out of their minds. Wow. But verse 7, so, so beautiful, so beautiful. Jesus comes and, and touches him, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Do you think these guys ever forgot this? <laughs> I highly doubt it. Are you kidding me? And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision till the Son of Man is raised from the dead. What? Well, how many times did we see in John's Gospel Jesus say, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come until finally at the appointed time, Jesus said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. He came to conquer sin, to conquer death, to be the sacrificial lamb slain for the sins of his people, to glorify the father. So what you saw today, Peter, James, and John, is not for now. It isn't for now is a preview for when his second coming glory the return of christ 
So, to wrap this whole thing up then, Peter was saying, look, look, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we did not follow cleverly devised myths and stories and tales. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Beloved, when you open the pages of scripture, you have the true word of God in your hands. Not only do you have the eyewitness accounts, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Is this the infallible word of God? You bet it is. God declared it. And then down in verse 19, Peter says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. More fully confirmed. Why? Because the reality came true in the New Testament times and it was written a thousand years ago. The prophet said, this is going to happen, and then it's happening in their midst. And then we read about it. You have the prophetic word, the more fully confirmed, to which you will do well, all of us. We would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. Remember I was talking earlier about the, this dark world. We need this lamp, the, the word of God that shines and gives us direction in, in the darkness until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I opened reading a portion of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, which tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God. And let me just finish the rest of the verse. It's profitable for teaching, okay? So that's why we teach the word of God Teach the word of God for reproof and correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay? That was part one. <laughs> that was part one. Lord willing, next week we'll get into point number two in God's supernatural revelation. And I pray that God's words ministered to you and brought you reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that you may be complete and equipped for every good work. If you need prayers this morning, we would love to pray with you. You're welcome to come forward or stay after service with our sister Elizabeth. And at this time, I'd like to invite you to please stand as we sing the song of invitation, Hymn of Heaven. Lord bless you.